This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we discussed some of the challenges that Heath has faced during his time in prison. In this episode, we'll talk about the work he's done to heal from some of his trauma and the people who have helped him along the way. We will be hearing from Heath Stocks, Anna Cox, from Charles Peckett, and Donna Lawson. So to pick up where we left off, it was really heartwarming to see the amends that Heath was able to make with Cletus Hogan before Cletus passed. And I think that similar amends have been made with a lot of different people who have come to visit Heath in prison, in particular his family, because I'm sure that was so hard for them, especially in the very beginning, right after the murders have taken place and his grandparents on both sides have lost their children. They've lost their granddaughter and their grandson, technically as well, because he's now in prison. And so I'm sure emotions are at an all-time high and there's so many questions and people looking for answers. And so different family members coming to see Heath and really kind of hash things out. That had to be really difficult for them, too, because on one hand, he is their grandson, he is their nephew, but he also is responsible for them losing the rest of his family. So that had to be really a tough emotional spot for them to be in, to go see him. But they did have questions, a lot of questions. So every week that they could come down, was four hours. So we just sit out there and they talk about things and talk about family and different things. And, you know, and eventually, depending on who they're visiting, things would come up, questions would come up. That dad really was the only focal point that we could have at certain times because when I was trying to talk to family and they, of course, were trying to understand what led up to this, why, understanding how this could have happened, of course, it was easier for the Harris side to talk about my dad than it was for them to talk about my mom versus the stocks, which were Dorothy and Bonnie. And it was easier for them to talk about everything but Joe. So they were very protective of it. It, it was difficult because they wanted to shield and guard the memory they had of other loved ones to my father and mother and sister. And there were times that, you know, they got frustrated with me. And I had my, had my grandma you know, walk off and leave, leave visit, get mad at me and walk off and leave. And so it was very, very, very hard times. But those times were very important because it allowed us to have that exchange and conversations that allowed us to work through that and create an opening where I would talk because it allowed me to talk about my dad and allowed me to talk about the instructor. And then it allowed me later on when the conversation started to start talking about Jack. I'm sure, especially for Joe's side of the family, it was probably hard to hear some of the stuff that Heath was saying about Joe because everybody knew that Joe was hard on Heath, but they didn't know to what extent. And so Heath talks about they basically they knew a different version of Joe than Heath knew. And so I think that their first instinct was kind of to push against what Heath was telling them about Joe. I think so, too. But also you have Dorothy, who has said previously that she had turned around and walked away because of Joe. And then you look back to the Arkansas State Hospital records that we had talked about previously, and they said that the family members had said at times when Heath was two or three years old, they had seen bruises on him. And Heath had tried to tell them what was going on with Joe, and everybody was just like, well, that's Joe, that's your dad. And it was a whole different mentality. Now that they're seeing this, I wonder if they thought we should have taken it more seriously. We should have stepped in way back when. Because back then, people used to use corporal punishment a lot more. They still do now, but I think it was a lot more back then. And it was more accepted. And that's your child. You raise them how you see fit. And you always hear people, too, saying, my dad hit me and I turned out fine. And Whenever I hear anybody say that, I always think in my head, no, you didn't. No, they didn't because they're still dealing with that trauma. They might not realize it, but the fact that their dad or their mom hit them 
when they were a child, it's a whole other mindset because those are your formative years. But it almost makes it easier for them to fall into those type of situations later in life. It almost normalizes it for them. And so while they think they're fine, oh, I turned out okay, I got hit. Like you said, no, no, you didn't. Because if you look at other relationships in your life, if you examine things and the way they have gone for you through your life, did it really impact it? Probably so. Bringing it back to Heath's family, coming to visit him while he was in prison, I feel like that was probably really helpful on both sides and very interesting to hear how those visits went. His grandmother gets up and walks out at times. She's mad. And that has to be such an emotional journey for them all to go through. And that says a lot, too, about they stuck around. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to work through it with him. They wanted to understand what had happened. And while those conversations were very difficult, they stuck through it. And it's really good that they did because I think that it did a lot for Heath and his family in terms of healing from what had happened. And it's really crazy to hear the stories, too, of what Heath is going through in prison. And then he comes out to talk to his family and he's got to talk to them about why this happened, what happened with Jack, go through all that again, and then go back into prison and deal with that whole new life in there. So it's just a lot of different things happening at once for Heath, but also for his family as they're trying to understand why their grandson and nephew did this. So while Heath is going through this journey in prison and the journey with his family and helping them to try to understand why everything happened, there's a lot of people that come along the way that enter his life that have a major impact on him and his his healing. And one of those people is Anna Cox. Anna is a psychotherapist. And she worked in the prison systems and had a lot of interaction with Heath. And her story on how she got there was fascinating to hear. My name is Anna Cox. And I, long, long ago, in the early 1970s, my training was in clinical social work, and I went into private practice as a psychotherapist in, oh, about 1974. So for many years, my practice worked a lot with people who were dying, and then I got a letter from a man on death row in the prisons. And actually, I'd worked a little with people in prison. And he was facing an upcoming death sentence and asked if, because he'd seen that I was doing a workshop on death and dying in the newspaper. And he asked if I would help him prepare for his death by execution. And so I began corresponding and visiting and helping him get ready to die. And that took longer than we expected. But by the time he was executed, I had come to know all of the different people on death row through our visiting in the visitation room. And so after he was executed, then I kept visiting the other death row inmates, and then that spread out to cell-to-cell visits throughout the maximum security prison. And after that, she realized that there were so many different prisoners that needed that. So she started working with other prisoners, not just on death row, but prisoners overall. That's such an interesting field to get into because... I would imagine there's a lot of challenges. I'm sure these prisoners have walls up that she has to try to break down to even begin to be able to help them. Another story she told, which I found was fascinating, is she first started visiting and teaching in prisons in 1993, and that just began to expand. So then in 2005, she started Compassion Works for All, which is a nonprofit that now reaches several thousand people in prison. 
and it offers help to them. It teaches a lot about meditation and self-awareness. And she was actually in a room with 50 students decades ago where the Dalai Lama charged them with doing a prison outreach program. And he saw the suffering and inequality in the prison system. And Anna was in the room that day. And that really inspired her to make a difference and make a change. And I believe she has, not just for Heath, but probably for thousands of different inmates. I began doing volunteer work, doing therapy with people at their cells and doing group therapy and meditation training and then traveled around to the different prisons. And he came to some of those groups in the early 2000s before he then asked if he could have some time to talk to me individually. Wow, that is fascinating how you started doing that and and got involved. I'm sure that was pretty intense for you. Well, I put in long days. I'd get down there early in the morning and I'd start one unit and I'd go to cell to cell working with folks as much as I could. And oftentimes it was 9.30 at night before I walked out the door. But folks were really, really eager to heal. And he, too, absolutely was among those who very seriously, clearly wanted to heal his heart and soul and poor broken brain. What was your first impression of him when you met him? He was quiet and very intelligent and very sensitive, and he had already done a lot of soul-searching and had begun on his own to unearth a lot of the buried pain and trauma and horror, but it was a lot, and he just was looking for a path. And uh, it's courageous in a prison to ask for help, even though he had befriended some of the, the people that come to a group like that are usually those who are brighter and already more clearly looking for a way beyond their pain and suffering and are already looking for a way to connect to others. And so they're the more unusual ones in a prison setting, but they are the ones who help to heal and change a prison population to benefit the others. Heath, I think, was one of those folks that contributed to the stability of other folks already, even early in his prison stay. Even though, you know, he was carrying demons around inside of him, he knew he wanted to heal. Did he strike you as different than other prisoners? He was different in that there was something still that could be saved within him. A light was still within him. Somebody had given him something along the way that allowed him to know there was something savable within him, even though his heart and soul had been so terribly damaged. He still had a place of hope. When we would talk, he opened up. He he was sincere. He clearly shared in a way that I felt the authenticity and truthfulness and the pulling up from within things that were very hard to say. And he would pull them up and out in deep, long pauses. And then I would 
kind of go over with him some things that he could do for homework, whether it would be journaling or just meditating and really thinking about some the things that had happened to him and being loving and compassionate towards himself as he revisited some of the horrors and suffering that he had gone through. And he truly did that homework. And when we would talk the next time, he would talk about what he had experienced. And sometimes he would bring some notes of things that he had written, and he would make progress. I was going to ask you, based on your experience and people that you've worked with, what would that be like for a child's mind then to have those seeds planted and fortune manifesting and it sounds like kind of turmoil in his head? What would that be like then to be handed over to Jack, who tried to be everything his father wouldn't be? Well, there's a very important thing there that at one level, Jack was manipulatively trying to be what his father wasn't because he was grooming him to take him over and brainwash him and make him his sexual object for his own sexual addiction. And he already had some hints from the other boys, and probably frighteningly so, because kids know these things, that other kids were being abused, and that was the price that he was going to have to pay if he stayed in this very abusive, horrific relationship, but he was willing to pay the price because he was so desperate to get the sense of affirmation and feeling of uh, acceptance that he obviously had lost in his family. Now, Jack Walls was a very, very sick individual and almost like a tyrant of a cult leader over all of these children and wanting to create such a murderous power structure that he was killing their souls by not just sexually abusing them, but teaching them to kill other people. And that's a very serious form of being a psychopath to have other people do your killing for you as well as doing your killing yourself. And he was brainwashing these children, and he knew he was paying a price, and he did. And for children that experience sexual abuse, it's almost like every cell in their body is contaminated. Nothing is trustworthy anymore within themselves. They've given everything away to their abuser and have been taken over. And they live in domination and fear and loss of self. It's a terrible, terrible crime to do to children. I really kind of think that the work that Heath did with Anna is one of the most impactful journeys that he's gone in while being in prison. I would agree with that. He has brought her up so many times and the help that she had given him and what she did for him. And then finally getting the chance to talk to her and to hear everything that she does for so many people. And she's so unassuming in the way that when I told her it was just amazing what she had done for people, she never took credit for that. She would always say they did it for themselves. All you have to do is give them a little push and open up and they did it all for themselves. And I can see her point because you can't make someone want to be a better person. They have to want to do that on their own. And that's what happened here. These classes that she was having or these sessions that she was having in the prison were not mandatory for Heath to participate in or attend. And they were something that he sought out on his own and followed up on and made sure that he was doing the work. 
he was good to other people. If somebody can be a good steward to the prisoners around them, that's a whole lot harder than being a good steward to your next-door neighbor whose dog is barking or whose fence is falling down. It's a lot harder to be a good friend to somebody in a max unit in a prison than it is to most neighbors in a small community or even in a big city. You can find the toughest city around. These folks that are working hard on themselves in a prison, they get A-plus for taking on the toughest friends you can find and helping them, helping them grow, helping support them, helping guide them, being their teachers. And he's just one of those that's a helper. Something that Anna talked about in her interview, too, was that when you're growing up, it takes quite a while for a young mind to form and for you to have that adult mind where you're able to make rational decisions and think on your own and not be influenced by things. And Arkansas recently passed the under 18 bill stating that nobody under the age of 18 could be sentenced with life without or the death penalty. And so I know that they're working to get that passed for now age 21. And so that bill should be coming back up. But it's interesting, her take on it, too, because the mind of somebody that's not 21 yet isn't probably making the best decisions in their life, especially if there was so much going on before that that impacted your mind. Recent studies have actually shown that the rational part of the brain isn't developed until the age of 25 even. So I would imagine maybe somewhere down the line, once the under 21 bill has passed, maybe under 25 would be next after that. Do you think, based on your experience, a child's mind fully developed at age 21 or is it later or how, what are your thoughts on that? I think for many people, it's never. <laughs> but <laughs> certainly it's rarely at 21 and it's hardly ever at 18. But for many people, in a sense, every single one of us has been, <laughs> in a way, brainwashed to some degree. But some of us are lucky enough to have loving, kind parents that brainwash us to see a loving, kind world with people we can trust. And we grow within us a balanced perspective of the world where we can trust and love others. And we learn about consequences, A equals B equals C, all the way to Z. And we learn how to do all of that and our brain cooperates and our our hearts cooperate and we don't pull in vast conspiracy theories and we don't you know we trust in the mechanisms of how things work but a lot of people depending on the obstacles and stresses and dramas they face their brains and hearts and minds can't do that And people have told them things don't work that way. And if they need to rely on that person who is telling them that story, they are going to believe that story, no matter what the world says. And that is their salvation. That is their life-saving story. Even though that person that told them that story is their mother and mother dies when they're six, they are going to hang on to that story for dear life unless somebody else comes along and patiently and lovingly and compassionately takes them by the hand and says, let's look at what you love. Let's learn to love yourself and who you really are. And only then can they start finding a healthier story. And it's so sad that all children don't have that. That's true. That would be the gift we'd want to give each and every baby is to have somebody who listens to them and says, who are you really? Let's go with that.
If this is something you feel strongly about and would like to see it in your state, reach out to your state senators because they are the ones that would be able to get these bills going. If you're in the state of Arkansas, I do know that that one is coming up. So write your state senators if it's something you feel strongly about. So when I got shipped over here in 05, they didn't have a chapel at that time. And I heard people talking about the, the search programs that they had. So they would, you could sign up for these programs. And each one of those programs were really affiliated with different either church groups or sponsors. And I think that Miss Anna Cox was either Life Principles 1 or Life Principles 3. But she had a meditation class. And, of course, the meditation class was non-denominational. It's actually based on Buddhist beliefs. And for some people, that was a barrier that they couldn't really overcome. And then other people, it was, well, what can I learn? Because before I came to prison, I had never been introduced to any Buddhist beliefs or meditation. That's something my dad would have probably dismissed as foreigner type stuff. But to get to sign up for the class and get in there and you see a wide variety of people, Christians, Islamics, Hinduists, Buddhists, there were even some other, and what I mean by other witches or people that believed in, you know, worshiping nature. You know, so you have a collective group of people. And Ms. Cox was welcoming to everybody. You learn to be more self-aware, to be more mindful of yourself and your thoughts, your feelings, and your body. And for me, that was very important because you did from a young age, the most foundational boundaries that I had had, which was my person, had been violated. So learning to be more self-aware about my body, where I carried tension, where I felt pain, uh, discomfort, what it was like to breathe and be in a moment, to learn to focus on your breath, to relax, to allow thoughts to pass through the mind, to not hang on to them, to be aware of your feelings, and just be more aware of who you are and where you're at at any given time. And, you know, we'd shut our eyes or she'd tell you to focus off on point and she would do this guided meditation. And or she might bring up something and ask how we felt about that. Encouraging you to relax, be more mindful, and also to open up and share with the group. Well, she had structure within the group. So if one person was speaking, you know, that person was supposed to be honored by everybody and listened to. And then when it was your turn to speak, everybody offered you the same respect. And so for me, it was some of the first encouragement to speak and probably the first therapy of sorts that I had had that was real. And she was this very kind-spoken, very loving woman who had very wise eyes who listened more than she spoke. And when she did spoke, there was something very specific about what she was saying. And when you came into class, she smiled at you and she looked at you like you were her family or a friend. Those classes were foundational for me about processing the past, learning to be more mindful, and work my way through. Because I don't think a lot of people know what they feel and why they feel that way. A lot of times we're conditioned by things, and then we're triggered, and then we react to those triggers, and we never even know why. So to be more mindful and to be self-aware and to figure out what your emotions are and why you feel those emotions. Empowering and enabling you in any given moment to stop and say, well, what's going on here? Am I seeing things as they are or as I am? I need to take a deep breath and just focus on my breath and allow this to kind of sort out so that I see things accurately. And, you know, to have that tool to be able to use was very important and encouraged me on my path getting books about trauma and abuse and psychology and learning about meditation and how to heal and become better. One of my favorite things about Ms. Anna Cox was the fact that she could find something good in everybody in the room, and she would praise and compliment that person about those things. She would see people where they were at and give them things that allowed them to grow where they could be. She wanted to be a doctor for the soul and for the mind, and that was very priceless. Listening to Heath talk about meeting Anna and the work that they did together, I found myself just nodding along because so many of the things that he was saying that he worked on with Anna are things that I worked on myself with my own therapist. 
And I really think that Anna's role in Heath's life story is pretty significant because I think that she gave him the tools that he needed to continue on his path of self-healing. I would agree with that because I talked to her for a little over an hour and I feel like I gained something from her just in that hour. So I can't imagine working with her for years and what she could actually help people with. Another person that has been very instrumental in Heath's growth and development as a friend is Donna Lawson. I first started talking to Donna quite a while ago. I want to say maybe a year ago, even more, and met with her on one of my visits down to Arkansas. We had dinner together. She was absolutely fantastic and one of my favorite people in the world. And the next time I went down, you were with me and you were able to meet her too. Donna has kind of become our Arkansas bestie. Just about every time we've gone down there, we meet up with Donna, have lunch or dinner with her at our little spot, Dizzy's Gypsy Bistro, which is just the cutest place. That has far become my favorite place. My name is Donna Lawson. I was raised in Lono and went to school all 12 years there, went off to college, majored in elementary education, and ended up in Bryant, Arkansas, which is where I taught school. What grades did you teach? I taught six years of kindergarten, one year of third grade, and the remainder were all in first grade. It was a total of 41 years is what I taught. What do you like about teaching? I loved teaching children to read. That was my very favorite thing to do. I loved reading books to children. I loved to see the light bulbs come on in their little brains when they realized that they could actually take a book and read it. That's something I enjoyed. I loved the interaction with children. And first grade was just perfect for me because no matter what, they loved you. You could scold them, get on to them. They still loved you. They needed attention. They wanted to be loved on. And I, I felt like that was my strong point. I think it's really fascinating how Donna and Heath became friends. As she saw his story and ended up reaching out to, to see if it was okay if she contacted him, if he'd be open to that. I just thought that she was a friend of the family, that that was how she knew Heath. And so hearing that backstory was definitely interesting. How did you meet Heath? That's very interesting. I actually probably about 11 and a half to 12 years ago, scrolling through Facebook one day, and I came across something about Heath Stock. I recognized the name because I was raised in Lone Oak. And of course, I knew the story. Something really hit me in my heart. And so I started reading the comments. And my first thought was, wow, that's really interesting. They allow inmates to have a Facebook page, which doesn't speak much for my intelligence. But I started reading about it and then commenting and people would comment back to me. So it was supporters that had started that Facebook page. And I believe they actually printed it off and would give it to Heath so he would see that. And I got to talking to several of the people that did it. It was mostly women. And so we would exchange phone numbers and talk. And I found out that very few people communicated with him. And I sincerely prayed about it and felt very led to write Heath a letter. And I had even asked on that Facebook page, do you think that he would be okay if I wrote him a letter? And that is how it started. And like I said, that was about, it was somewhere between 11 and a half and 12 years ago. And we began writing letters. And then I got on his visitation list and I have been going to see him ever since. What was your first initial impression of him through letters? Well, it was just very exciting for me to talk to someone that I knew had been in prison for so long and not having a lot of interaction with the outside world. And from the very beginning, I wanted to share things with Heath about my life. I wanted to hear about his life. We have an agreement and we've had it for many years now. He can tell me anything, and I will not be shocked. Nothing is going to shock me. 
Now, deep down it might, but he will never know that because I've psyched myself up to where I can talk to him, listen. He can tell me things that would bother most people. And I just let it kind of go in one ear and out the other. I can remember years ago, I like to travel and I was kind of shy about sharing that with him because I thought that it would hurt his feelings that I like to travel and I like to go places. And of course he can't, he is stuck in concrete walls. And then he told me early on that he loves the fact that I will share with him. And now because we can email and I can email him pictures, when I go on a vacation, take a trip somewhere, I always send him pictures from there. And he has made me realize that He can see those places through my eyes that he, from my words and my pictures. And so he's getting to see parts of the world that he's never been able to see before. And I just love the the friendship that we have and the way that he opens up to me and I can open up to him. So tell me about the first time you met him in person. What was your impression? Uh, really didn't know what to think when I first met him because we had written letters for quite a while. And then I think I'm the one that even said, would really like to visit you in person. How do you go about getting on a visitation list? So we went that route. And I just knew when I went in, I just felt genuinely very warming. He makes you feel very good about yourself. I've never, ever looked down on him for any reason whatsoever. We are on the same playing field when I'm sitting in prison with him, having a conversation, visiting. We're two good friends that have become very close friends. Can you tell me maybe what is it like when you visit him? What do you guys do? What do you guys talk about? Well, when I go down, it's about, it takes me a little over an hour to get from where I live to the prison where he is. And when you get there, of course, you pull up and your car has to be checked and you have to get out and give them your driver's license. And then you go in and then you stand in line and then you have to go through the machine to make sure that you don't have anything on you that's not supposed to be on you. And then they'll call out his name and he will go into a little, it's like a little cubby. It's just a little area where you have no privacy whatsoever. And they'll have two chairs if it's only the two of us. And after, I haven't visited with anyone after his grandmother Dorothy passed away. So it's the two of us. I always opt in the prison vending machine area. I always bring my money so I can buy soft drinks. He loves popcorn. We'll do checks Mix. I'll try to get him a candy bar, little things like that. And then I go into the room where he is, this long room with all the other prisoners, and I call it our picnic. We take paper napkins, we spread them out everywhere, and we open up our popcorn and candy bars and our drinks, and we just visit. You know, I'm able to hug him when I walk in. And so we get a hug and then we sit in our chairs facing each other and just have a great visit. And the time goes by very, very quickly. What's it like when you leave and you have to leave him there? It's easier now. In the beginning, it was very hard to leave because as I'm pulling away, I always look in my rearview mirror and I see the big prison. And I see the wiring and the person up in the tower with the gun, and it makes my heart sink some. But I've been doing it so long now that I just look forward to the next visit. It was really sweet, too, because she had been from the area. His Aunt Bonnie had been her biology teacher, and they formed this great friendship She went to visit Heath a lot with his grandmother, Dorothy. And then when Dorothy passed away, I feel like Donna just continued to carry on as Dorothy would have wanted her to. And it's also kind of neat to see an outsider's perspective, so to speak, into the relationship between Heath and Dorothy. Because Donna tells these stories of being on visits with the two of them and just seeing them interact like a, a grandma and a grandson. Did you, did you ever meet his grandma, Dorothy? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I love Dorothy. There were 
times that we would both end up being there for a visitation at the same time. And watching the way those two interact was just heartwarming. They picked at each other, but it was so playful and they joked. And a lot of time, Dorothy couldn't hear what he was saying. And so she would always turn to me and say, Donna, what does he say? What was he saying? He would say little things to her like, Grandma, are you over there passing gas? I know you are. Everybody knows that you are. The guards are looking at you. And she would just literally fall out of her chair laughing. And he would laugh. And it was just those little instances like that when they would say stuff that, you know, no one's face was turning red over. They giggled and laughed and, you know, she'd pop him on the arm. And I loved watching those two. They had a good time. And she would always tell me, I want him out of here. He's got to get out of here. And I will tell you, the woman has told me so many times she would do anything to get him out. Anything. She had a lot of regrets, a lot of regrets of how in the beginning with not having a trial, letting him go ahead and plead guilty, that bothered her in her later years. But she didn't know. She would talk to me about it. She wanted him out of prison. She felt like he had served his time. He had been there long enough, and she wanted him out. She personally told me that. Do you think in her heart that she thought that he might still someday? I think that was a possibility that she thought could happen. I know that she loved him so much. And, of course, I mean, she lost a son a daughter-in-law, a granddaughter, but she also didn't know anything about Jack Walls at that time. When it happened, she did later on, and that completely changed everything for her, the way she thought, and she felt like he had served his time, and she was hoping that she would still be alive when possibly he could get out. What'd she think of Jack? Did you guys ever talk about that, about what had happened? We didn't talk about what happened. I knew how she felt about Jack Walls. She had shared that with me. And Dorothy could occasionally use a few four-letter words, (laughs) and those always came out when she referred to Jack. Yes. She had no use for what he had done to Heath and to all those boys at Lone Oak. She just couldn't even stand to think about him. I think it's really fascinating, too, how Heath actually helped Donna with identifying students that might be going through similar trauma that he did. He has helped me out tremendously being a friend and especially teaching young children and helping me recognize some signs of abuse that I have had with children. And he brought that to my attention. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. I have had a couple of children, too, that come to mind that I was sharing with him about some behaviors that were going on. And he would ask me some questions and I would answer him. And he would tell me other things to look for. And he said, I really think you need to look into the fact that possibly they could be abused. And some of the things I kind of knew, but he reiterated those to me and made me more aware if I had students that started having accidents at school, if they were wetting their pants or if they were messing on themselves. And in first grade, it's very seldom that that happens, especially if it happened more than once. That was a clue. Also, he had me looking at eye contact. Was there a problem with them wanting to look at me? Or did they ever flinch when I would go to put my arm around them? Because I was a very touchy teacher with having little ones. And he told me to really pay attention to that. Did they seem to flinch like my touch was scaring them? Things like that, that just made me more aware And a lot of it were things that we had talked about when I was in college. But to hear someone that knew firsthand, it really made me sit up and take note and pay attention. 
And on two different occasions, after a lot of research and finding out that he was right, and without him giving me some things to look for, some kind of questions to ask them, and just everything from looking at their facial reactions when I would say things to them, it came out that they had been abused. One of the things I loved about Donna was she didn't hesitate to share about life, what her life was like, what was going on in her life. And, you know, a lot of people, they just assume that someone that locked up for decades doesn't want to hear those things or that those things are important, whereas the opposite is really true because it's the details of life. Those are the things that are happening to them and are important to them. And allowing me to be studying of that information allows me to feed back to her. And sometimes just talking about it helps work things out, you know. So I tried to be the kind of friend and supporter to her and a source of love as she was to me. And that's why we became such good friends. Hearing that story of Heath pointing out signs on a particular child to Donna, that was probably one of the most impactful things that I've heard so far in this story. I think it's really inspiring that Heath is able to take his experiences and use them to protect children, even from prison. I think it always goes back to what I know I've said to you before. You could go either way when you go in prison. It takes a lot to be a good person. Like Anna mentioned in her interview, to love your neighbor, to see past people, to try to be that better person. It's like she's one of those people that, you know, the, the only friend she doesn't have is somebody that she's never met, I think. You know, she talks to anybody, and I think that comes from being a school teacher, you know, I mean, especially first grade, and making people feel comfortable and talking, and open up, you know, connect to people emotionally. So, a very beautiful person inside and out, and someone that was willing to accept me where I was, as I was, and who complimented me about the self-worth that I had done, uh, who I was the person that I cared about other people, and that she could talk to me about her problem. It was a very special friendship, and, you know, I appreciated it more than I can probably express. She was family, and uh, that was very important to me because as my grandparents got older and started passing away, there were huge voids that left because my grandparents had been there as support and love and coming to see me once a month for the last 20 years back then. So it was very vital. She had very strong morals and character and integrity, and she's a God-loving Christian. She goes to church all the time, and you hear it in her voice in the way that she interacts with people and she cares about people. And so... We would sit down, and she'd ask me about what's going on with me, and I'd talk about it. She'd ask questions, and, uh, and then I'd say, well, what's been going on with you? So we talked about her daughters. We talked about their husbands, their kids, you know, all the things that, as a grandmother, she was proud of, or a mother. You know, it gave me a chance to love them from afar as well, to celebrate their accomplishments and the things that mattered to them. So in addition to the life principles classes that Heath took and the meditation and the self-help type things he did on his own, he did some classes within prison as well. And some of those that he completed and got program achievements for are things such as principles of applied living, thinking errors, anger management, stress management, communication skills, domestic violence, he got his paralegal certificate while he was in there. He now works in the boiler room and he has his boiler room certification. So he knows how the entire boiler room system works in the prison and they call him to come out if there's any issues. And he's just really taken the extra steps to try to make himself a better person with the limited opportunities that he's been given. And they are very limited opportunities because... When somebody has life without as their prison sentence, there's not a lot available to them because it's looked at more as a wasted resource. This person's not going to get out. They're not going to be rehabilitated. So why should we use resources when they're just going to spend the rest of their life in prison? 
Outside of the different programs and classes that Heath has participated in, he's also read several self-help books and searching out different things that can give him more insight and healing. While all the people we've heard from in this episode have been key figures and regular visitors or regular interactions with Heath throughout his journey of healing, there has been one person that during an interview expressed some interest in visiting Heath again, having not seen him in 26 years now. The last time he saw him was when he interviewed him about the abuse that Jack Walls inflicted on him. I've been wanting to go down there and talk to him again, but I don't have a good legal reason to <laughs> to go down there and do that. But I would love to go and talk to Heath again. So what did Heath tell you about Jack, about the murders? He, when I interviewed him, I didn't get into the murders with him. I told him that I, was, I wouldn't do that to him, that he needed to talk to the county on the murders. I talked to him about the abuse, and he told me that what was happening to him, which is the same thing that was happening to the other boys. So did he tell you that he killed his mom, his dad, and his sister? No, he did not. Do you think that it's possible that anybody else was involved in those murders? It would only be my personal opinion on that. Yes, I do. I believe that somebody else was involved in it. The one person that knows is, is Heath, and he's the one person that can, that can tell us. In the next episode, we will hear the untold story of Heath Stocks as he walks us through the events of January 17th, 1997. Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.